0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackos. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Tobias Straumann about his new book, 1931, Debt, Crisis, and the Rise of Hitler. Whether you're a professor, a professional, or a concerned citizen trying to understand authoritarianism, Straumann has written a book you'll want to read. 1931 tells the story behind the debt crisis that crashed the world economy and launched Hitler into power. Now, A lot of research on this can become bogged down in an overwhelming march of treaties and statistics. Not so with Strahlmann. 1931 is a remarkably fast-paced narrative that keeps the reader involved. The numbers are all carefully chosen and paired with small details from memoirs that bring the story to life. There's just something about a chair-throwing financial officer and the occasional parliamentary fistfight that makes you want to keep reading. But enough from me. Tobias Straumann has been so good as to join us today to talk about 1931. So, without further ado, Tobias, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me. Well, to begin with today, what brought you to the study of history?
1: Uh, probably my father, because he's he's a he's a natural scientist, but he was has always been interested in uh, earlier scientists and how what they did and what they were thinking, and I think that's that was the reason why I, why I studied history. You're a bit of a rare
0: bird among historians as well. How did you end up pairing economics with history?
1: Well, I, I've always been interested in economic issues because I, I st- started to realize that if you don't understand anything about economics and economic history, you you, you don't really understand uh, history itself because work and money and... Uh, employment and all those things and our finances it's so important for, for for our everyday life but also for politics for geopolitics for foreign policy it's so important and I I was always uh, I felt not very well because I thought I was excluded from a very important topic so I started when I started studying history I started to you know, to go into the field of economic and social history business history but I've always been a, his, a historian and I stay a historian. It's just, I think the broader your perspective, the more you understand.
0: What brought you from that background and those interests to write 1931
1: specifically? Um, well, there were two reasons. The first reason was when the financial crisis broke out, I got a lot of calls from journalists and I was invited by many associations or labor unions or whatever. And I always uh, had to explain them whether we're going to see a, a repetition of uh, the uh, world economic crisis of the 1930s. But I also realized that people knew a lot about 1929, but not about 1931. And for us economic, financial, monetary historians, it's uh, 1931. That's the really real turning point globally although the uh, crisis took place in Germany, but it had an enormous negative global impact. That was one reason I thought, well, I have to explain that to everybody, why 1931 is so important, also so dangerous, you know, uh, and also so relevant for today. And the other reason was even more specific. We had, after the US financial crisis, uh, we were witnessing the Euro crisis, which was a quite a different type of crisis. It was uh, more about um, finance, monetary problems, uh, loss of confidence in certain countries. And as a result, because these countries were or are still part of the European Monetary Union, they don't have the means to fight unemployment as countries uh, which have their own currency, for example, Iceland. Iceland had a terrible crisis, but thanks to their currency, their own monetary policy, they could devalue and endorse banking system and it made it quite easy to exit from the crisis. Whereas Southern Europe, they were really stuck in the crisis. And uh, that's so dangerous. Uh, whenever a government is not able to fight unemployment, uh, That uh, leads to an enormous polarization of of, uh, political landscape, and there is always the danger that all of a sudden you have very radical parties. And luckily, it didn't happen, but it's not over yet. And uh, 1931 and Germany in the early 30s is kind of the the worst you can expect from such a dangerous situation as we had in in southern Europe, and we're going to have it again whenever there is a new recession. talking about the,
0: the current economic cycle winding down. I mean, you're already pointing it, to it with your
1: response, but what's the core
0: message from this book that you want people to walk away thinking about?
1: Well, the core message is that uh, you have to be very careful about designing international institutional arrangements. And, and of course we all want rules and I think the rules should be quite strict. They shouldn't be too flexible because otherwise they 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 are meaningless but on the other hand for for real uh emergency situations like deep economic crises you need to have some escape clauses or some some way to make the arrangements more flexible and uh, today in europe we have this uh, european monetary union that is not flexible enough they're, they're trying hard to improve it but they're not there yet And in the 1930s, it was those international debt agreements. And it was not just reparations. It was also the debt owed by France and Great Britain to the U.S. And also the new private debt that emerged in the the second half of the 1920s. Germany was borrowing heavily, uh, the government, as well as banks, manufacturing, and uh, this this double debt pyramid was very dangerous because in the short run, you were forced in a crisis to pursue deep austerity, predictably, I mean, this deepened the crisis and ruined the political system of the Weimar Republic. You open the book with the story of Felix Zolmeli,
0: the raven, predicting the interwar economic collapse almost step by step, but he was ignored at the time. so. What was the accepted wisdom of the day, and where was he differing?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Osamari uh, predicted the crisis not based on some intuition or, or some uh, hunch uh, or some speculative uh, thinking, but he simply identified uh, the weaknesses of the international debt relations. And the main problem was that Germany had to pay reparations too many, a uh, very high volume of reparations to Great Britain and France mainly because Great Britain and France also had huge debts vis-a-vis the United States. And so Mari just pointed out this is not, this is not sustainable because uh, Germany had to pay too much in order to uh, maintain the payments of uh, France and Great Britain to the US. That was one point, and he also showed very clearly that in order to, to keep this uh, recycling going, Germany was accumulating new debt debt from mainly from the Wall Street banks, and this uh, this combination of reparation debt and this additional private debt was clearly not sustainable as he showed very well, and he was not the only one actually there, there were other people who pointed out that this is not going to work in the long run and interestingly uh, people didn't didn't believe him uh, it's hard to say it's probably psychological you know you uh, you, you have this uh, strong recovery in the second half of the 1920s globally everywhere and people finally after this uh, catastrophic first world war were you know gaining confidence And i thought uh, they thought we the, the world would would go back to normal conditions also the economy would recover forever, and uh, they just couldn't imagine that all of a sudden it would collapse very quickly, kind of a confirmation bias you know you you've you living you've been living through several years of recovery and through the economic growth so you know you just interpolate that to the future and you think it's okay so there is some kind of a lack of imagination I think um Interestingly, the Europeans at the time thought that the, the stock market crash in October 1929 at on Wall Street was a good message because it ended speculation. They thought that would normalize economic conditions and, and so Mari told them, no, this is going to have enormous implications for the world economy through these financial linkages and they just they just couldn't see that. So um, it reminds me a lot of what happened in 2008 and eight, uh, two thousand eight and nine, when the Europeans were watching the U.S. financial crisis in the first round. They thought, we're not going to be uh, touched by this crisis. This is a U.S. crisis. But then they realized that the, the, the European banks were heavily involved in the U.S. market, actually much more than the, the U.S. banks, and then the mood started to turn, and in the end, they had another domestic crisis uh, when the European monetary system came under stress so that's that's really interesting and people just don't believe that things can change very, very quickly due to financial disturbances taking a step back again, as the
0: problem begins to take hold, the Hague conference is convened to try and address the issues that are arising but the agreement that's arrived at there is ultimately what creates the debt trap that releases the financial crisis. To start off with, could you just briefly describe for us what the Young Plan was and what
1: it was trying to solve? Yes, that's very interesting. Uh, uh, what what happened in uh, in, in the Netherlands uh, at two conferences in the Hague? You have to go back to the Versailles Treaty where uh, they started to uh, initiate the, the negotiations on on the height of the reparation debt there is a very old literature that tells us that versailles was so bad that it was just a matter of time until everything collapsed but what's interesting is that when you look at what the diplomats did throughout the 1920s they were constantly trying to adapt uh, these uh, reparation agreements to the the new reality in the 1920s Germany became much more conciliatory and they were really that they tried to to uh, initiate international cooperation so they started to yeah, to make concessions toward the Germans and the young plan the uh, negotiations started in 29 it was concluded in in January 30 the young plan they really made Additional concessions to the Germans, and and that was really substantial. Uh, substantial that France, for example, also agreed to withdraw their troops from the Rhineland, from the western part of Germany, five years earlier than agreed uh, in 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 Paris Versailles. So it's it's wrong to believe that international politicians diplomats did not try hard to adapt but what i realized when i was uh, looking at negotiations it just they just couldn't go far enough to come up with an agreement that that was resilient or could adapt to fast changing economic conditions as as it were in the early 30s so they were really trying hard they made a lot of progress but fundamentally they never they never reached uh, an agreement that was really sustainable and the, one of the main reasons was of course that the united states was not really involved in those negotiations after the world war they they wanted to do business in in in, in europe but not become politically involved and uh, as long as the us was not ready to cancel the uh, french and british debts or to further use them as, as, as long as they weren't ready to do that, Germany still had to pay quite a lot of reparations to those other countries. And uh, that, that, that was the main problem. So when the, the economic crisis started, Germany still had to pay those reparations. It also had to pay additional private debts. It, it uh, had accumulated during the 1920s. And what it meant is that they had to lower wages. They had to because they needed, of course, foreign reserves in order to transfer the reparation debt. But they also needed to raise taxes, cut spending, and that, that was a very poisonous combination. It, it really deepened the crisis enormously. And, and the Young Plan, in this sense, strongly contributed to this downturn. If, if there hadn't been this debt trap, I'm, I'm quite sure that the Weimar Republic would have had much more chances to survive Uh, the world economic crisis. The Young Plan appears
0: to be stabilizing this situation. And at first, there are these optimistic reports about an impending recovery. But at the same time, as you're pointing out, it's provoking this poisonous atmosphere within Germany that results in a constitutional crisis. What's happening there?
1: Well, uh, initially, the people were uh, optimistic because... The plan was really crafted, uh, diplomatically crafted. It was was really uh, they, they worked a lot two weeks, and they finally came out with a compromise. And then they expected that the same would happen as it had happened after the so-called Dawes Plan of 1924. That was kind of the, the beginning, the cornerstone of this of the golden twenties of the global economy in 1924 because at that time they ended uh, German hyperinflation and they also came up with a more workable reparation agreement. And uh, But it also started this debt cycle between the U.S. and Germany. But anyway, 1930, after the conclusion of the Young Plan, it was adopted by both parliaments, French and German parliament, by, by a substantial majority. Um and I thought that this, it would repeat itself again, a new agreement, better conditions for Germany. Okay, now we're going to have a recovery. But that didn't happen because the environment was different. Germany already had fiscal problems. The Government was divided over the contributions to the insurance, uh, uh, unemployment insurance and it was a grand coalition of social democrats and uh, center-right parties close to the, the economic associations. And of course, the center right didn't want to increase contributions. They wanted to cut spending, and the social democrats, they wanted to increase contributions. And they could not find a way out of this uh, of this problem. And uh, it collapsed. The grand coalition collapsed. So it, it was a Quite a different situation. So there was also already a fiscal crisis. There was enormous political polarization. And uh, there was uh, also another president in 1924. There was a social democrat who really strongly believed in the Weimar Republic. In 1930, there was Hindenburg, who was uh, really a right-wing president who did not really trust the democratic parties, especially not the social democrats. And he was uh, not interested in, in including the social democrats in a future government. So the the, the situation was was quite different. In addition, the world, the world economy was already in a crisis, completely different in 1924. That was really the end of the post-war recession. The global economy was recovering everywhere, not just in Germany. So we again we had a very different environment. That's why this optimism after the conclusion of the of the Young Plan was not justified, and it it collapsed very quickly when uh, some bonds were issued. You know that was part of the Young Plan. International bonds were issued, and they were not really fully subscribed by investors. Whereas in 1924 it was completely oversubscribed. And uh, there was uh, great confidence that now the world economy was re- was recovering, but not, but not in 1930. So we have a, kind of a combination of different aspects of the crisis, world economic crisis, fiscal crisis in Germany, a political crisis, in a way a constitutional crisis because the president doesn't accept certain parties. And there is... Interestingly, uh, from a constitutional viewpoint, it's a very, it's a very dangerous situation because then the president selects a minority government and promises them that they could govern thanks to presidential decrees. So in a way, it's or it already goes beyond uh, the democratic rules. But interestingly, on the other hand, when you look at the international press, when you uh, investigate. The stock exchange or the, the prices of German bonds, they don't move really. So it's very similar to what we saw in Southern Europe when technocratic governments were instituted, for instance, in Greece or in Italy. Uh, many people and investors, they were kind of relieved because they thought that now experts are going to solve the fiscal and political crisis. That's what happened in Germany in, in March nineteen th- of 1930, after the passing of the Young Plan in the Reichstag, a new government is installed, uh, under the, under Chancellor Heinrich Brüning. He's from the Catholic Center Party. He is, uh, yeah, he, I don't know. It's hard to say very exact. He's kind of everything. Right. <laughs> and he's kind of social, but not, he's not a social democrat. He is, uh, Let's say he's revanchist. He would like to, you know, change the, the borders in the East, but he's not the only one. But on and and on the other hand, he, he tries, really, he tries sincerely to solve the fiscal crisis. And he actually, he believes in the, in, in, in the Republic. He's not a staunch defendant of the Republic, not at all, but it's, he's not part of this right wing conspiracy. Uh, aimed at destroying the Weimar Republic, so he's he's kind of a middle of the road guy, but he's not he's not clearly for the for the Weimar Republic. Um, so, but he's not. in Yeah, he's pri- pri- primarily he's a technocrat who is supposed to solve the fiscal crisis and uh, to keep paying reparations. Actually, it's an interesting position he
0: finds himself in because he can rely on. Uh, Hindenburg to use far, uh, to use article 48 under the cover of the Weimar Constitution that in a state of emergency I will back up any deadlock that you run into so he doesn't have to have support of the government he can
1: force through these technocratic measures right exactly um, maybe maybe just uh, I have to mention that there are some historians who have a very negative picture of of Brüning and um, there is this old uh, hypothesis or or actually a claim that he he had the intention to ruin the German economy in order to get rid of reparations. And uh, I, I'm not convinced by that. There is a actually, there has been a very intense, interesting debate in Germany between uh, Knut Borchardt, uh, he taught in Munich, um, and Albrecht Ritschel is part of uh, those people, and also, uh, for instance, Harold James. Who have pointed out that Brüning did not have any room for maneuver, and I, I share his opinion. I think I, I I show quite convincingly in the book that he was not that was not his plan. Of course, he wanted to get rid of reparations eventually. Everybody in Germany wanted to get rid of reparations, but but that he didn't have the plan to ruin the German economy. What he did, of course, in the end, is he ruined the German economy. There is no question about that. What he did is absolutely undisputable. But the motive was not ruining the economy. The motive was put the financial house in order, and uh, then in a the second round, uh, get rid of reparations. But 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 I I, I don't think it's it's convincing to to, to claim that ruining was kind of really the 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 devil who 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 had had a, had an evil plan and yeah. actually was was the guy who buried the Weimar republic i don't think that's true mm. well, he's certainly unpopular at the time for it i mean the
0: Hoffman memoir describes okay. it as uh, operation successful patient dead exactly well, there is no i'm never i would never dispute that his economic policies were 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 horrible you know On that note, though, they're solving financial crisis at the
1: cost of full-blown political crisis. Yes. Uh, Are you talking about uh, the the new package, austerity package? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that was his. He was installed by Hindenburg, uh, and it was also his conviction that the German finances had to put in order that the deficits were too large, and he actually he continued the same austerity program as the grand coalition the the German social Democrats, they also had to, were forced to uh, start the austerity program. They, They were just not, they couldn't agree with their coalition partner how to implement it, but it was exactly the same thing. You had to increase taxes and lower spending. And what's also very important to know is that Brüning did not replace the state secretaries, the experts in the bureaucracy, they all stayed and in the finance ministry the the crucial figure who designed most of the austerity programs was uh, Hans Schäfer and he was close to the social democrats and the german democratic party so this uh, center left pro republic party and they basically just continued what what the, the grand coalition had started but they failed in the summer of 1930 And uh, then they tried to invoke Article 48 in in order to uh, ram it through the parliament. But that didn't work because the parliament had the the instrument of blocking 48. And uh, then Brüning had to dissolve the parliament, which was a disaster. After three months of governing, he had already uh, provoked uh, new elections. But in a way, that was, you know, that was kind of the, that's, that's normal course uh, of events, as, as I said, in, in Southern Europe. It was exactly the same thing. You replace the government with experts and technocrats. They did what they had to do. They had no choice to pursue austerity because conditions didn't allow them to have expansionary economic policies. And so after a few months, they were already so unpopular that they lost every support in the parliament. So it, it's, so history kind of keeps repeating itself. Um, and Brüning uh, then thought that he might gain some seats uh, uh, during, during the elections because he had still a, quite a good reputation as financial expert. But as it turned out, the, the elections in September of 1930 were about were about um, foreign policy, reparations, debt, the allies that really uh, enslaved the German. The ensla- uh, that's what the propaganda says, Enslaved the uh, German taxpayers and workers. Three generations. Yeah. yeah you know, and so he was in a very very weak position, and uh, he was complaining uh, in the cabinet about about the campaign of the opposition because uh, he, he exactly knew once once the campaign is about foreign policy, he has no chance. He has no chance. And that's what happened. And uh, as I said, the same happened in in Southern Europe uh, during the Euro crisis, because the opposition parties, like the Nazis or the communists in the 1930s, they always pointed out that international debt agreements or the International Monetary Union does not allow us to fight unemployment. And our government is on the side of the foreign creditors. And uh, that's a scandal because we elected them to take care of our problems, but they're not doing that. So as a government, you, you, you lose Im- immediately, you, you lose your uh, leg- legitimacy once you're in such a position. Brenning's austerity program and
0: Schaefer's austerity program really addresses the acute emergency but it still leaves Germany in this precarious position. Like they're constantly looking for more money to bridge finance gaps. You quite aptly described this as the brink and back, but could you tell us
1: a bit more about the Higginson lead loan? Yes, sure. Yeah, that's, that's a very important point. It's not just that there is a structural deficit. There is also the problem that uh, funding, the fund that they have constantly the threat of a funding crisis, just running out of cash to pay the bureaucracy and and to pay social insurance and all that. So after the elections of uh, mid-September 1930, where the Nazis and the communists won uh, hugely, um, of course, foreign investors are very frightened and they start to stop. uh, They don't renew their short-term loans uh, anymore. So that means that you have a run on the German currency. People are starting to sell all assets uh, denominated in in the German currency. And the result of uh, of this capital flight is, of course, that the central bank is running out of gold and foreign exchange reserves. Uh, On the other hand, we're in a world of the gold standard, and that means that 40% of the notes in circulation have to be backed by gold and foreign exchange reserves, mainly US dollars and British pounds after the the elections, after this shock of the Nazi victory, these reserves are shrinking very quickly and they're uh, approaching this limit of 40%. And uh, uh, in addition, there is, of course, the funding crisis because the foreign loans are not being renewed. And luckily, Schaeffer stays cool. Uh, He remembers a, a meeting with representatives of the Boston Investment Bank, Lee Higginson and co. And he he manages to negotiate another loan. Uh, The conditions are not very good for Germany, but at least they get enough money to survive the next three to six months. And uh, because they are uh, successful in concluding this uh, new loan, uh, markets uh, calm down, uh, reserves are coming back. There's some confidence restored and it gives Germany another couple of months to to think about the political and financial future. And with hindsight, I think this period now is the crucial period because everybody could observe how Germany was imploding economically and politically, but there was still some time to react. And, I, and for me, that was very fascinating to see how diplomats, politicians, bankers, economic leaders, labor unions, they all try to come up with new ideas to end the German crisis. But unfortunately, they never find a solution, but they're, they're trying hard, you know, they're not stupid, they're not irrational. They start to realize what's at stake, but it's just, it's like, a, it's, a, it's a real tragedy. Yeah, they see the problem, but they, it's too complicated to solve, you know?
0: I mean, like, that's part of the issue with the, so many different international actors involved with this. Because you have this cycle of reparations, sovereign debt insolvency, and then political radicalization that starts to take hold. And nobody can address the situation, it seems. What's holding them back? Like you say, everybody is coming up with different solutions, so maybe we can move ahead here, maybe we can move ahead there. What's stopping something from moving ahead?
1: Uh, that's uh, first of all. I mean, it's a lot about domestic politics. Uh, France, uh, the, the elite, uh, they would like to help, but they know they cannot. They cannot uh, extend financial help to Germany because uh, the French public has become uh, had become uh, very mistrustful. The reason is that after the withdrawal of French troops from the Rhineland in the summer of 1930, it was an early withdrawal as part of the young plan. Young France was, was ready to withdraw the troops five years earlier. The German response to that early re- withdrawal was, finally we got it back, but we're not, we don't have the territory we, we would really like to have. There is another. There was another area, the Saar land, they wanted to have that back. So they were immediately starting to talk about German nationalism, the rebirth of the German nation, and they were repeating old claims. Uh, they were also talking about the Eastern border. So the French had they had expected some sign of reconciliation. They, they thought the German would be thankful for this French gesture. But instead, they realized that the, the Germans become even more aggressive, arrogant nationalist. So for the French politicians who wanted to bridge the gap between Germany and France, they couldn't do that. So uh, they always uh, linked their offers, their, finan- their financial offers to Germany. They always linked them to some political conditions which Germany could not fulfill because they knew if they uh, fulfilled these uh, these political conditions, they would be a lot under pressure because they were already under a lot of pressure because there were these opposition parties, the Nazis, the communists, German nationals, other right-wing organizations who were already accusing the government of collaborating with foreign powers. And uh, there was just not a possibility to go even further into that direction especially not after those elections of of September 1930 so i think that's that's one of well, maybe the crucial the crucial factor is domestic politics but there is also interesting the role of the us uh, because the us was the main creditor and it was the country that really could make a difference they had the political means they had the economic uh, power to to change the situation and here it's also domestic politics but maybe it's also the personality of of uh, US president Hoover who was a very intelligent man he knew Europe very well he knew about the problems he had always been critical of the Versailles treaty and the, and the reparation agreements but i think he i mean with hindsight of course it's not it's not a realistic alternative but maybe if there had been another person who had been a really, little bit more courageous maybe he could have reacted a bit earlier but it took him until mid june to realize that that he really that he had to act but you know that that may may that's always a, a might be a factor you know personalities of crucial figures yeah. but it's hard to prove that of course and so we have a very, very difficult situation This a difficult relationship of France and Germany, poisoned by recent events. And we have a, a U.S. president who sees the problem but thinks he doesn't have the mandate to intervene in Europe. Um, so th- this is also a, a, only a sketch of the situation, but it already shows how difficult it was to
0: find a solution. That seems to be the difficulty in this situation, that anybody who's going to try and move ahead on this needs to show that that most terrible of virtues, political courage, and essentially sabotage their own party's interests in the future within the domestic political sphere in order to avert an international catastrophe. And you end up in this sort of prisoner's dilemma, who's going to make the first move
1: so that we all move together. Well, it's new for me to discover, maybe other people already knew that, for a long time, is that if you want to find a new international agreement, you have to, to cut radically existing agreements. For instance, you know, what Hoover did in June of 1931, he simply said reparation agreements and other war-related uh, international debts are canceled or for one year. Just imagine. I mean, I mean, he he really he destroyed good faith into international agreements. And that's what makes it so difficult to condemn these people. You know, you had, they, they, in a way they had to act like criminals, you know, they had to violate international agreements they had negotiated earlier in their career or supported or, you know, endorsed in their earlier career. And that makes it so diff- also so difficult to condemn Brüning because Brüning was upheld those international agreements. But uh with hindsight it would have been better if he'd had said at an early stage, maybe, you know, I can't pay anymore. Uh let's have a new solution. We have to we have we have to restart uh, this whole process. But you know, that means you have to break international rules. And established politi- politicians are usually and luckily not ready to do that. It's almost all only fringe politicians who are then ready to say, well, Let's just wipe away everything that de- destroys our economy and that but that means uh, repudiate uh, international agreements and and I think that's another post another problem of solving uh, an economic crisis you know generated by international agreements and really the point that you're making about needing
0: these agreements to be sufficiently flexible or to have essentially pressure release valves built into them yes, exactly well on Bruning Specifically, let's talk about his manifesto. Where is that coming from and how does that end up triggering this run on currency?
1: Yeah, that's that's not a very interesting story. Um, Let's go back to the elections of mid-September 1930. Uh, There's this huge victory of the Nazis. Everybody starts to realize uh, it's becoming more and more dangerous in Germany. So they start to negotiate. They always meet. They have plans. Uh, There is a lot of goodwill, but as I said, in only in the end it doesn't work. So uh, there is a new, there is a, a crucial meeting in, in early March of 1931 in the Chancellery of Bruning. Uh, officials of the Finance Ministry are coming to him and tell him, "We're going to have a funding crisis in a couple of months if you don't launch another austerity package." And then Bruning, of course, is 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 frightened, He's surprised. And he thinks that launching another austerity package cannot be sold to the electorate unless he's, uh, he signals that he's starting to question the reparations agreement openly, not just in private circles, but openly in the public. And then the cabinet starts to negotiate the, the austerity package, and they always start uh, start to think about they always think about how to combine the austerity package with with a manifesto that doesn't destroy the credit of Germany but also but still signals some kind of change in in the in the policy of the policy of greening and so in early Mar- in early June, three months after this crucial meeting, they publish their austerity package and they link it to a manifesto in which Grüning and the cabinet tell the public especially the German public okay uh, we have to do this but we are aware that it's very painful for you and they have a sentence in the manifesto that says it's probably the last time that we can impose an austerity package on our people because they're exhausted and interestingly it's Again, it's not just Brüning who wants to publish such a manifesto. It's also Hans Schäfer, who actually got the idea from a member of the Reichstag to link the austerity package to this to this ambivalent manifesto. So it's it's not it's not a conspiracy of Brüning. It's, it's, it's really, it comes out of the finance ministry in the end, actually. And again, Schaeffer is rather a social democrat than a right-wing politician, not at all. And the uh, the effect, predictably, the effect was very detrimental to international investors because they immediately thought that Germany would stop reparations soon. That would, would be a default, you know. And, of course, again, like after the elections of September 1930, they start to withdraw their funds. And that's actually the last act before the crisis erupts in mid-July because once the foreign investors and then also the domestic investors start to lose confidence in the currency of a country, it's getting very, very difficult to maintain the financial monetary system.
0: So what does happen in July? What creates the cascade effect? Uh, the cascade
1: effect is, is, is the failure of one of the largest banks of Germany, the so-called Donat Bank. But it's only a symptom because the problem is that the German banks uh, were financed to a large degree by foreign short-term money. Uh, so they were especially vulnerable to a run on the German currency. And in addition, they had very low capital ratios because they had lost a lot of their capital during hyperinflation. So they were already in a weak position. Then this political shock came after the money face off printing, so they lost their funds. And finally, Donald Bank was very weak because one of their main clients, Nordwolle, was bankrupt. And uh, that's, that was a huge amount of loans that were not repaid to to the Donald Bank in the short run, so they were the first shoe to drop because they were in a particularly weak situation. But it's it's not the German crisis not primarily a banking crisis. It's I would say it's kind of a combination of banking currency and sovereign debt. So it's 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 a con, it's it's kind of a that makes it so so dangerous then for the for the global economy because it it, it disrupts. Uh, the whole monetary and financial system of Europe and, and, and then has repercussions on the U.S. and Japan and so on.
0: Hitler steps into the breach here. What's making him an attractive alternative at this time?
1: Um, his advantage is that he had always been in the position of, uh, of a guy who pointed out that the German government uh, is doing what foreign creditors want them to do. And he was always predicting that this, is not, this was not sustainable, that in the end, Germany would pay dearly for this, uh, for this policy of fulfillment. It was called policy of fulfillment. And unfortunately, this was not entirely wrong, you know. Uh, and, and most Germans uh, shared this opinion. But the government could not change course, so he could constantly repeat his accusations, which were, as I said, which were not completely wrong. And when the German financial and monetary system started to collapse in in the summer of 1931, he, of course, felt vindicated. And the public also started to realize or to think that uh, he, he was not a fringe politician, but that he was actually the main alternative because he had been the main and most vocal critic of this austerity, austerity policy. It's like the best position you can find yourself as an opposition politician. You can, you know, if you can criticize the government of uh, complying with foreign creditors on the back of the, of, of, of of your own workers, that's, that's the worst you can have as a government. And, and Hitler was not the only one, but he was the guy who was uh, who had a party, was very well organized. Uh, that's why he was able to become the main opposition leader. But the, the message actually was also was that the communists had the same message. And even the social democratic labor unions became increasingly skeptical of these reparation agreements because they saw what the debt trap did to, to the government, to the economy, to employment. So uh, so Hitler optimally used this uh, this opposition against against the government and against this this death trap. And uh, unfortunately, there was not another opposition leader that had another plan, you know, and was not anti-democratic.
0: Mm-hmm. That seems to be the failure of imagination all along at all levels: is this inability to move ahead uh, that nobody nobody except the outside candidates are the ones who are willing to say this agreement is unworkable in the long term,
1: and we need to completely revise it until it's way too late. Yes, exactly. And uh, again, to 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 make the bridge to the present, we we had exactly the same situation again in Southern Europe, mm-hmm. where parties at the fringe all of a sudden became very very powerful. And interesting, initially they all had in their agenda: let's leave, let's leave the euro. Because then we have our monetary policy back, and then we can fight fight the crisis and and we can fight unemployment. Uh, interestingly, or luckily, there were almost all of them were democratic parties. That's the huge difference between Weimar Republic and Southern Europe today. And I'm uh, we're very lucky that this is still very stable in Southern Europe. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, once they were in power, they did not dare break uh the international agreements. So you have you have to be very extreme like Hitler to really go through. I mean, he really they really uh they 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 destroyed globalization once they were in power and they had this autarky and all that. And that's different. You have you have much more polarization. It's 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 a really different era, uh, era the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties. So you need to you need to be very extreme to get rid of international agreements. But still only
0: a difference of degree and and length of crisis, really, or at least that seems to be what you're suggesting.
1: Yes, yes. Well, what I'm suggesting is that most historians focus on the weaknesses of the Weimar Republic, and that's true. Of it's course, a, It's a specific historical context that is different. It's not comparable to today. But what I'm pointing out, it's not enough analyze the weak Weimar Republic, you also have to analyze the earthquake that made the Weimar Republic collapse. And it was not just a normal economic crisis uh, that uh, occurred in the early 30s. It was one of the worst financial and economic crises of modern history. And uh, it had enormous political implications also because it was so horrendous. And I think uh historians need to think more about the earthquake and not just about the building that collapsed and that's and that's what makes it dangerous in in the near future if you, if we if you're gonna have another enormous financial or monetary crisis in europe and I'm not saying that then you have uh, extremist fascist movements, but you really you're testing democracy to an extreme to an extreme degree yeah that's dangerous that we should, we should change uh, economic policies in Europe in order to have, again, very stable democracies in, in Southern Europe. Well, stepping back to look at the book as a whole now, can you outline your point
0: about these path-dependent processes and what you do mean about realistic agreements in that respect?
1: Yeah, well, it's not a very, very easy question, of course. I'm just suggesting that we should, should think more about it as historians. And perhaps we should talk more to uh, lawyers and people of the judicial branch because they know how international treaties are working. But what I, what I suggest is that now very specifically for the 1930s, they should have had a clause that when Germany is in, a, in an economic crisis, it doesn't have to pay reparations. You know, and I don't think that that would have been a, a huge problem because it's a contingent rule. It means that you, you know, you could, you know, whenever you could link it to to GDP growth, that would have been a deep politicized automatic rule. It was very would have been very easy to observe, and to maybe also to sanction. And because they, what they had, they had a sort of escape clause in the Young Plan of 1930, but it didn't work because it involved a very long process of negotiation. And once you have a financial crisis, you don't have the freedom and the time to negotiate. You have to be very clear uh, about what you're doing and just implicating that maybe you have to talk. To the Bank of International Settlements, in order to find out whether you were allowed to lower reparation agreement, uh, the reparation payments, that already unleashes, of course, a financial crisis because investors then anticipate what you're doing later. So, very specifically, I think that's the problem. Now, as far as Southern Europe and the European Monetary Union is concerned, uh, it's very, very hard to find a way out. But What we're having now is that the European Central Bank lowered uh, interest rates in order to maintain the monetary union, but it's not it's not enough. Actually, the problem is much more complicated than in the 1930s, where we basically just had sovereign debt. As I said, there there are mechanisms to to make it more flexible, but but the, the but the monetary union in Europe is still not working properly and. Uh, sometimes I think either you really complete it, but it doesn't look like it, or you have to think about, I don't know, uh, I, I really don't know. If you have to have some, some, some sort of fiscal transfer or something, but because otherwise it's going to be dangerous again in the next recession. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as that problem is concerned, I'm, I'm really not, not, Totally pessimistic, but I really, uh, I, I really don't think that's not going to work forever. Yeah, and it needs to be on
0: the radar more than it is. Yeah. I, I recognize that I'm taking you beyond the book in many ways here, but when you look at this issue and you look at the gridlock around coming up with a solution that we've talked about throughout this interview, my, my question when I put myself in the shoes of the actors that you outline here is how. How could I have done something different? Right? What were my options to do something different here? Because everything that I see and that we've been talking about is that there's, you're trying to sell unpopular measures to a skeptical public at the same time that you have radicals waiting in the wings to call you a traitor and make political hay off of any perceived subservience to foreign powers. How do you get around that? Like, how are you supposed to sell this to? A skeptical public because there has to be international agreement to move ahead on an issue this complex and there's a lot of them right now
1: yeah uh, yeah that's, uh, that's a very good point um, well probably you have just have to go through all the international agreements and i think there are international agreements that are no problem because they don't constrain your economic policies in a crisis mm. and i think many people don't know about most of the international agreements. So we don't have to question every international agreement, of course. But I think every international agreement that constrains, as I said, economic policies in a crisis. So it's a very specific case. Or let's look at banking, international banking regulation. It's getting better, but but the, the record is not very good of those international agreements because in the end, they just lowered capital ratios. So everything that that is linked to financial economic crisis, we should be very very careful to design it properly and and as you said uh, in earlier in the interview, some escape clause or some pressure release valve. Yeah, pressure release exactly, and because you never know how the economy evolves, you, you there are always crises you can never anticipate, and you should include that in your negotiation. That's all I can say. But it, it's not a. I'm not. It's not an accusation against every international agreement, but certain types of international agreements. I think, especially, sorry to repeat myself, but the European Monetary Union. It's just it, it's it, it's so careless how they started it because they thought, well, we just start to implement it. We know it's not completed, but in the end, when there is a crisis, we're gonna do what's required, what we are required to do. But but they didn't. So uh, the, uh, that kind of thinking is not very good. And I think it was similar with the reparation agreements. They, everybody knew in Versailles and then in 1921, there was the London ultimatum. Everybody knew that it wouldn't really work and that it needed to be revised. But, but that's not, that's a dangerous way because once the conditions, the economic conditions, financial conditions, change very quickly it's too late and i think that's what i try to show that you have to think before the crisis starts how to make an agreement resilient or sustainable in a difficult environment and and uh, i think that the people at least that's my that's my impression the people uh, in the 1930s they did not have any chance of of an alternative not any chance but you should Avoid creating conditions that put politicians in such a difficult place. That's all I can say. It's like a biblical story, you know. Mm-hmm. It just shows you what happened if you're not careful. But, it's, but, but some historians then tell us, well, they were bad politicians or they were mean politicians. I don't think so. They didn't have any alternatives. They had no options unless they were ready to, you know, be very radical, but but that's not what we expect from established politicians. We want to have some accountability and all that, you know? So that's, I I think it's more kind of a lesson, please be careful, please be careful. There was no way out of the crisis for for those politicians.
0: Well, you're here to that, (laughs) but before we go, what is it that
1: you're working on now? Uh, I'm working on a couple of uh, articles on the same subject because uh, once you've done so much research, you would like to, you know, kind of spread. Uh, and, and there were some uh, issues I could not uh, treat in detail. Um, and and one, one point is I want to go back to the Hoover moratorium again and want to reconstruct how uh, the decisions were made Another one is how they tried to save the banks in Germany, but they failed to save them in the first round. So I'm working on some of the details, uh, and, and then as an as a next book, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to write 1932 <laughs> because now because there is another interesting phase until May of 1932 when Bruning was sacked by Hindenburg mm-hmm. because we. He started to cut the agricultural subsidies because he, he thought, I, "I can't just cut social insurance benefits." I also there has to be some symmetry, and uh, that was the reason why he was sad, because Hindenburg was very close to those uh, landowners who were just uh, cashing in those subsidies, and uh, immediately there was a, there was opposition to pruning, and that's another interesting turning point one could write
0: about. Well, I for one look forward to your treatment and hopefully we can have you back on when the time comes.
1: Yeah, well, well thanks very much for having me for this great interview and for the great questions. I hope uh, I could answer some of them.
0: It's been a pleasure. And that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking to Tobias Straumann about 1931, Debt, Crisis and the Rise of Hitler. Tobias's book is available from Oxford University Press as of 2019. And you can find it there as reasonably priced as it is readable. 1931 is ideal for anyone trying to wrap their heads around some of the most important drivers behind political radicalization without the benefit of a background in economics. With that, though, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.